Good morning. That's good to hear. So a word about prayer meeting. I want to encourage you in something about uh, the prayer meetings we have here. I think sometimes when, uh, when churches hear about prayer meetings, they have all kinds of things they're picturing in their minds. And um, uh, this may be typical or traditional to you, but there are also some, some situations where people don't really want to pray out loud. And I think sometimes they think that if you come to a prayer meeting, it's expected that you pray out loud. And the prayer meeting we have is volunteers. So we... We list three or four things that we need to pray for, and then someone says, okay, I'll take those three or four things to pray for, and they pray for them right then. Then we we go to four or five more things, and somebody else says, I'll pray for those few. And that's how the prayer meeting goes. So I I want you to please prayerfully consider attending if you can. Um, I don't want to say that prayer meeting is the heart of the church because Jesus Christ is the heart of the church. And by the way, prayer doesn't change things. It's the God to whom we pray that changes things. We, we can't worship prayer. That's not what it's supposed to be. But here's, here's the wonderful thing. The God we have, the only God in the universe is our God, and He hears your prayers and He responds. And when we, when we do this in a, <clears throat> in a group of people, it's a wonderful thing. So uh, sometimes we get a little gabby, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, by three in the afternoon, we need to leave. And so anyway, this is, this is how we divide it out. From 11 to 1130, we, we try to make it all things church in, in the sense that what is God doing with us? What does he need to change in us? Uh, help us be sensitive to what you're doing in our, li- in our church's life, Lord. And then we, we have a, um, a gourmet lunch. In other words, whatever you bring for your own bad self to eat, that's what you eat. And that, if you want that to be gourmet, that's great. But we have a little brown bag, buy, uh, brown bag lunch. And it's there that we share some things. And maybe we even start praying a little early. And then our goal is to be uh, to have the prayer group done by 1 o'clock. And uh, sometimes we make that and sometimes we don't. But it's a wonderful time. I do not want anyone who may attend, but for fear out of being put on the spot, they're not attending. That's not how we operate. So anyway, there you go. Lord, we have uh, many wonderful things that you've done for us this week as individuals and as a flock. Uh, Father, we do, we're do. we so grateful <clears throat> that in the midst of sorrow and sadness that you, have, that you chose to use your flock to ease some of the burden on that with one of our families. And God, what a, what a blessing that is. That's so unexpected. And, uh, and at the same time, Lord, shouldn't we know that's what we should be doing? And so we, we thank you. We pray for another family, God, that's not with us this morning. <clears throat> and uh, be back with us next week. But, uh, Father, we, we've grown to love this family a great deal. <clears throat> uh, six ordinary boys in all the right ways. And, and they're here, and we've grown to love them, and Joey. And uh, so, Lord, things just keep shifting around in, in his life. And uh, it, uh, it's, it's wonderful what you're doing because you're the one doing it. Uh, so, Lord, we are excited to see them next, uh, back next week. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you will get the messenger out of the way and pull the spotlight onto your message. In Jesus' name, amen. So, last week we walked through our review of the four cups of the Last Supper. We also studied what took place in the upper room concerning the rituals of the Seder meal. 
And the argument that broke out between the apostles, who the greatest among them would be. We covered all of those things. And then Christ's loving and gentle rebuke of those apostles by perhaps in the middle of that argument, or as that argument began, he just put, out, put away his outer clothes and began to wash their feet. What a tender way to rebuke people. Um, <clears throat> we also studied Christ. Uh, Christ challenges them to live their lives as servants as he himself lived his life as a result of that washing. And Christ identifies Judas as the traitor. <clears throat> These things happened last week. We studied them last week. Luke twenty two twenty one and 22 says this, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the, at the table. For the Son of Man <clears throat> goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. We've talked a little bit about that. We must add here the account in John of Judas's response to that. That's not the heart of our study this morning. It's just a way to get us to the next part of what we're going to study. John 13, 27 through 30 says this, And then after he, meaning Judas, had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast. Uh, which they had already feasted, so not sure where all that works. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. The reason that's significant is because now night has fallen and the official time of going count, kind of counting down to the Passover, the sacrifices, depending on whether you're from the North Kingdom or the Southern Kingdom. We talked about that a little bit. I won't get into that. And then we concluded our time together by reading the following scriptures, Luke 22, 25 through 30. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So this is what we believe. We believe that that is the fourth cup that Jesus did not pour during the Passover celebration. And what he's mentioning here is the fourth cup or the renewed celebration of the Passover would take place either in the thousand year, the millennium or the, millennium, or the, uh, the kingdom of heaven or heaven itself. And so some would say, well, why do we need to celebrate a Passover if we're in heaven and all that's done with? Um, here's my thought. Uh, God will say, I want you to continue to look at the cross of my son because that's why you're here. And by the way, the, the bloody lamb appears in Revelation. So it isn't that God says that was then and this is now. We're not going to deal with that stuff anymore. I think we will be continually in celebration of what Christ did for us. And that's the Passover we will celebrate. We will not celebrate the one out of Egypt. We will celebrate the final Passover when God's wrath took the blood of Christ and passed over us. So I think it's a beautiful thing. Jesus had made a very dramatic point concerning their identity in Him. And we could summarize it this way. If you, 
If I, your Lord and teacher, which you have confirmed to be true, place myself in the position of a servant or a slave to you, how much more should you, who are students of mine, consider yourselves to be servants of one another? So true. For unless you continue to wash one another's feet, this isn't scripture, just so you know. For unless you continue to wash one another's feet, pride will overpower you and the gospel will be lost. That's the meaning of that. And he's speaking to these 11 men, one of whom can't control his temper. And John and James are called the sons of thunder. And ironically, these are the three that would carry most of the burden of carrying the gospel, at least through the first part of the book of Acts. So, that is true of us this morning, is it not? Unless we continue to wash one another's feet, pride will overpower us and the gospel will be lost. I don't know who this was. Maybe it was Chuck Swindoll. Maybe it was... I don't know who it was. But he was... I tuned into one of his uh, you know, programs on uh, the radio one day... Uh, had heard millions, thousands of these as I was traveling. And he made this point. He said, you know, if you have a pastor that's unwilling to, to empty his own trash can, you have an issue. I want you to know you guys have an issue. <laughs> Linda's defending me up here. <laughs> yeah, that was a joke. That was a joke. So anyway, uh, see, washing someone's feet isn't serving in your strength. It's serving in your weakness, maybe, huh? And that's what he was saying. So this is where we pick up our story this morning. According to Luke, it is here that he turns to Simon Peter and makes a statement that should have struck fear into his heart as well as the the hearts of the other apostles. This is an amazing statement. We're going to study this in three different uh, sections. One is going to be Satan makes a demand. That's the first point. Luke 22, verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assigned you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And at that point, we think, he turns to Simon. Now, Peter, uh, Jesus renamed Simon... Renamed him Peter. He rarely called him Peter. As a matter of fact, according to some scholars, he only called him Peter one time. He kept referring him to Simon, Simon, Simon. We don't know why that is, and it's not really worth trying to figure that out. But that's why I've listed him as Simon in these notes. He turns, he turns to Simon and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So here is what we have. We have this this, uh, very wonderful dissertation from Jesus that ends up with these things. And he's saying, you are the ones that have followed me. I have found you worthy. And as God has found me worthy and given me a kingdom, I now find you worthy and I give you a kingdom. And this is all very positive. And then he looks... To Simon, and I love the way he repeats his name. You know, there's almost no other way to read this than this. Simon. Simon. He's a brother. He's a disciple. He's faithful. 
And Jesus looks at him after saying all of these wonderful things. He says, Simon, Simon, behold. He says, pay attention. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. We dare not miss the compassion that is present in Christ's voice. This way I would have addressed one of my children, or might still, if I knew they were about to undergo something, that I knew how awful it was going to be, but they didn't. The Scripture here is very revealing in a number of ways as to how the spirit world functions. As a matter of fact, these next few verses kind of stopped me in my tracks as I was studying for this this week. There are three participants in this scene. Now, what we're studying here, though, this section is Satan makes a demand, and these three things fall under that setting. We have Jesus, we have Simon Peter, and we have Satan. We're going to begin with Jesus. Jesus is speaking to Simon Peter after Judas left the upper room, and he tells Peter that he was the subject of a private conversation between Satan and himself. Now think about this. Satan has approached the Son of God, concerning Simon Peter. Not only was he the subject of a conversation, but it was a personal conversation between Satan and himself. In other words, Satan approached Jesus for the sole purpose of discussing something concerning Simon Peter personally with him. And just between you and me, that would not have made me very comfortable. Had Jesus turned to me and said, Tom, Tom, Satan has demanded that I turn you over to him. That would not have made me comfortable. Can we just take a few seconds and digest this? This is what we know about Simon. So we talked about Jesus there. Now we're talking about Simon Peter. Peter was impetuous, strong-willed, a leader, and also quick to repent of his sin. He grieved his sin. Peter and John are the most prominent of the apostles throughout the first half of the book of Acts when the church as we know it began. Peter was crucified on an upside-down cross because he felt unworthy for his death to mirror the death of Jesus. They're going to crucify him. He said, may it be upside-down. Here's one more thing we now know. Satan believed Peter to be the greater threat. Now, why was he the greater threat? As impetuous as Peter was, he had a personality that could drive him through the enemy forces by himself. Also, he recognized him as the leader. The leader of the eleven. So we have Jesus, we have Simon Peter, and now we have Satan. Satan is desperate and audacious at this moment. Can you imagine Satan going to the Son of God demanding anything? The 
The word demand means this, to ask from or demand that one be given up to one from the power of another. So to transfer the authority one has over someone to someone else. The very word demand had these connotations attached to it for ill purpose. So the Bible uses the word demand. The scriptures do. It could have been a request. It could have been a demand. But the sole intent of demanding something was because there was going to be punishment and suffering involved. So here we see that Satan was requesting or demanding that Peter be moved from under Christ's authority and placed under his authority. Now, this event serves as a perfect reminder that Satan can do nothing, absolutely nothing, without God's permission. Satan is not a free agent operating under the umbrella of God's authority. Satan is still a servant of God. As a matter of fact, he's a demoted and condemned servant of God. But he is a servant nonetheless. And by the way, he can't die. Nor can he be redeemed. Satan is a pawn of God who is utilized to help accomplish God's will for the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we see here that even Satan's most desperate hour, he must still seek permission for all he desires to do. This is ironic. We see another account of this in Job, of course, and that scripture references on your scripture sheet. This is consistent with what we read in the book of Job. Satan slithers into the throne room of God along with the sons of God and accuses Job of having false motives concerning his faith. God gives him permission to test Job. We see that each time he wants to test him further, he must seek God's permission each time. God, I want to ratchet this up on Job. And God had to give him permission to do that. And he did, by the way. So here's the irony. The most beautiful of God's creatures who led worship in heaven and desired to rule the universe, was reduced to an enemy of God who must suffer the humiliation of asking permission for everything he desires to do. Now, for us, it's a privilege, is it not, to ask God permission? Because we're redeemed. We're redeemed. We don't look at this the way the world looks at it. For Satan, it was torture. It was a forced submission And forced submission does not go over well with a prideful and arrogant man. In this case, angel. So we see in the second part of this verse that Satan was seeking, what Satan was seeking to do to Simon. Luke 22, 31 says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demands to to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Probably many of us in this room have been through enough sermons and Sunday school lessons that we know what sifting looks like. But I'll just give it a real quick definition. The reference to uh, to a process used in that day to separate the wheat from the chaff. Once the wheat was harvested, the chaff would be harvested along with it. They would take it to um, a floor, and, and this was typically maybe up on a little bit of a hill, because once it dried out, you would put all of this stuff in a very shallow basket, a, a kind of a reed basket, 
And as the, as the wind was blowing through the winnowing floor, you would shake this thing and the chaff would float up and the wind would take it away. But to shake that thing, you had to shake it pretty hard because there would always be a little bit of chaff left in there. It's still practiced today in lesser developed countries. So we see here that Jesus' words to Simon are rich in meaning. A a paraphrase might sound something like this in today's vernacular. Simon, Simon, Satan has requested that I turn you over to him so that he can shake the tar out of you. My dad used to say that to me. I don't know why. I was rather perfect. (laughs) Tom, one of these days I'm going to go hold you. I'm just going to shake the tar out of you. And he did. Even that's ironic. I looked that phrase up. Get this. Tar, in this sense, is a diminutive of tarnation, which is a condensation of eternal damnation. So when you beat the tar out of someone, you are essentially beating them sufficiently to return them to the path of righteousness. Even our slang hits it every now and then. That's exactly what Jesus was saying, by the way. Satan has sought permission, or he's, he's demanded of me to turn you over to him so he can look. He, he, he wants to destroy your faith. He wants to shake you so hard. And for so long, by the way, every apostle was shaken until the time they died. Every one of them. And it wasn't for a season or a few minutes, or a year. So if you were Simon Peter, how would that have made you feel when you heard this? Okay, Simon, I want you to know something here. Satan himself came to me, and we had a conversation. You know who was at the center of that conversation? You. You were at the center of this conversation. You know what he asked for? You know what he demanded for me? that I turn you over to him. You know why? So he can make your life miserable. So first we know that Satan makes a demand and now we know that Jesus grants the demand. So I invite you to picture the scene we have just read as if it was a scene from a war movie. You like war movies? Most of the guys will go, "Uh uh-huh. Most of the ladies go, no, not really. But think as a war movie. And the top general comes to this soldier. And he says, the general of the opposing army has requested that I turn you over to him. And then the camera does this kind of slow motion close up of the soldier's face. And you can see it when he first hears it. And then you can see it as it begins to register. And the expression changes. And I think Jesus, uh, Peter might have said something like this. But you've got my back, right? You're not going to let this happen. 
The answer to that fictitious question from Simon to Jesus is, Yes, Simon, I do have your back. But this doesn't mean that you will be spared from this. Look in verse 32. Christ's response, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Simon, I have given permission, but I have not deserted you. Here's what I have done for you. I prayed for you. In other words, I have given him permission to do this, to try to destroy your faith. However, yes, I have your back. And here's a question for us, for us this morning. Have you ever seen Satan? I'm not talking about a creepy feeling or a shadow that scoots across the floor or an intense feeling of dread or fear, but the actual embodiment of Satan. I would say no. Or maybe, have you ever seen a demon? Some may have seen a demon. Have you ever heard a demon? Have you ever had a demon address you? Or someone else close to you? Simon Peter and the rest of the apostles had experienced these things and more. In their time with Jesus... During Jesus' time upon the earth, Satan was very close by. Jesus continually garnered Satan's attention. My guess would be that Jesus continually protected his apostles from the enemy. He probably would have destroyed them. So here's my point. For us to try to put ourselves in Simon's sandals is difficult because Simon had seen many astounding and even frightening things while walking with Christ. Stunning things. Shocking things. And for Jesus to say, I have given Satan permission to sift you like wheat, had to be an incredibly daunting thought. It's not very daunting to us, perhaps, because we haven't seen the reality of the spiritual world very much, if at all. But then Jesus immediately consoled Simon with the following, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So considering the circumstances, if you're Simon Peter, would you have breathed a big sigh of relief right there? Oh, that, that's fine. Okay, that's fine. As long as you prayed for me. <laughs> Can I tell you what you already know? Many believers, perhaps most believers feel exactly the same way in this. Uh, look, I really appreciate the prayers, but I think I need something a little more tangible right now. You know, when you, when you can't pay your rent and your car breaks down, and there's illness or other struggles, we always appreciate it when someone says, We're, I'm praying for you. But what most people really mean when they say, will you pray for me, is they're praying that somehow God will touch someone that has an ability to help me right there in a tangible way. 
I will never forget hearing, and I tried to Google this, and maybe someone else will do it this week, but it was after one of the most recent gun shooting catastrophes. <clears throat> and they showed uh, the sheriff or someone say, our prayers are with these families. And the, and the commentator of the news station said something to the effect of, you know, I'm sick about hearing that people are praying for these people. We need to do something. Um, has that crossed your mind at all? <laughs> See, there's a balance here, which we don't have time to do because that's not what the sermon's about. But here's my question for you. If the Son of God knew that the most effective way of protecting Simon Peter was to pray for him, who are we? And See, here's the problem. The question we have to ask ourselves is, where do you believe? Where is the place when God ref- stops answering prayers? Does he only answer the big ones? Does he not answer the big ones and he answers the people who really need to see an answer to prayer? Or like someone that I love very dearly, do you pray when your car won't start? And then I go to rescue her, and the car has started. This is an amazing thing, you guys. This is what Jesus chose to do because he knew that he could best protect Simon Peter by praying. By the way, if you want to read that prayer, in your own time, not this morning, okay? Because it's a long time. John 17, chapter. I'll read part of it here later. But he's praying for the apostles. And it's a beautiful prayer. What we have here in Luke 22, 31 and 32 is a first-hand account of a confrontation between Christ and Satan concerning the life of one of Christ's most beloved apostles. And from that confrontation, we learn a couple of very important things. A, things don't always go how we plan, but things always go according to God's plan. Things don't always go how we plan, but things always go according to God's plan. God says this in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Satan brazenly confronts Christ and asks to shake Simon's faith, and Christ gives his permission. That's not how Peter thought this would go. But it's what God planned. And it's wonderful. Letter B. What we believe we need is rarely the same as what God knows we need. What we believe we need is rarely the same thing as what God knows we need. The need we see in this situation is for Christ to protect Simon from the plans of Satan. God, however, chooses to fulfill his plan in Simon's life. Can you see the difference? God, protect me from the enemy. This is my fervent prayer, God. This is what I need the most. He says, Tom, no, what you really need is for for me to fulfill, fulfill my plan in your life. And going through this is part of the fulfillment of my plan in your life. Don't pray that I will remove it. It may be the very thing you need. Can I, can I just say it is the very thing you need? Let 
Luke 9, 23, and he said to all, If anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Here's something you've heard thousands of preachers say, and that is if you're not willing to carry your cross and you're unworthy of Christ, then I'm unworthy of Christ much of the time. Because I am not necessarily willing to carry my cross, but I am willing to have God fulfill His plan in me. And in that plan, when I can handle it, I will carry that cross. Is there room for improvement? Yes. Yes. Greatest thing we can do is, Lord, what do you have for me this day? And may I never doubt you. May I never be overwhelmed by what comes my way because you are in control of those things and it is your plan for my life. It's hard to do. Let her see. Jesus chose to meet Simon's need through prayer. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus did not pray for Simon to be spared the temptation or the suffering brought by Satan. Rather, he prayed that his faith would not fail. Really, that his faith would be strengthened through these trials. So this is part of Jesus' prayer for the apostles just prior to their trials. John 17, reading with verse 15, says this, I do not ask, he's, he's praying to his father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He fulfilled that prayer with Simon Peter. God was protecting Simon Peter from the evil one. It did not mean that Simon Peter would not have contact or trials. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Where do you find truth? Scriptures. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. It's a whole different prayer than what I would have prayed. And Jesus' prayer was answered. And yet some might say that Simon did fail. There's the epic failure. And that prophecy is coming up in the next few verses, which we won't get to today. But the epic failure is this. You did deny Christ three times before the rooster crowed. That's a pretty epic failure. It's even written in the Bible, Simon. Your failures are written in the Bible. And so is King David's and King Solomon and Saul. We all have failures in our lives, but Peter's faith did not fail. As proof of this, let's read what Peter had to say concerning this later in his life. After he had gone through this suffering, and he was going to go through a lot more. First Peter 4, beginning with verse 12, says this, Beloved, out of wisdom, out of reflection on what he went through, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, because I've experienced that as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God 
rests upon you. This is from the man who right now is hearing Jesus say, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked permission. He's demanded for me that I turn you over to him and I'm going to do it, but fear not because I have prayed for you. So we have Satan's demand, we have Jesus grants the command, and finally, the purpose served by the demand. Let's call your attention to a scripture in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is, this is Joseph talking to his, what I would say, lame brothers. who sold him into slavery. Then he saved their lives. And they were afraid to tell him who they were. Of course, he knew who they were. And finally, they thought they were going to be killed. And Joseph says, listen, what you meant for evil, God used. No foul. Can I say the shoemate book would be full of foul, 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 foul. There is an author by the name of Henry Nowen who wrote a small little book entitled The Way of the Heart. And one of the points he makes in this book is if it is in the valleys where we draw the closest to Jesus, why is it that we long so much for the mountains? Hmm. That's pretty strong stuff. So that's not just talking theology. He said, wait a minute. Can we all agree that it's in the trials that we grow? And you may say, no, I fail in the trials. You may fail here. But what God is doing on the inside, you may not know for years. Our flesh fails every day. The thoughts we have. And we now says, look, if it's in the valleys and the hardships, why don't we pray to go to the valley? How many of you want to pray to go to the valley? I prayed that one time. It was a horrible year. I said, take us to the valley. God says, you heard him. <laughs> but boy, what we learned. Be careful in your prayers. But if I know that's where I grow, why don't I pray to go there? If Simon knew that's where he would grow, why didn't he pray to go there? I think maybe he did later in life. I don't know. Jesus knew the ministry he had chosen for Simon. Therefore, we can be assured that Jesus also knew exactly what Simon needed to be successful in that ministry. We have said many times here that our God is a God of economy. He doesn't waste time. He doesn't waste words. He doesn't waste thoughts. Because he's perfect. He has no mistakes to go back and have do-overs. God has not spoken an unnecessary word, made no unnecessary decision, and placed no one in any unnecessary situation. It was God's plan all along for Simon to undergo this temptation and suffering that he endured as he entered into the ministry. And this is what is revealed in the final part of our passage for this morning. Luke twenty two thirty one says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. He's going to shake the tar out of you. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. He's prayed for, 
faith. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So that's one sentence. It might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Did we catch this? Jesus knew Peter would fail. Not in his faith, though. He knew that Peter was going to deny him. As a matter of fact, he's going to make that prophecy right after this. So why did he do that? So that when you have turned again, when you have once again repented, like you do well, Peter, you repent really well, you're going to have to repent again. So, But when you have turned so that you can, by your experience, strengthen your brothers. Peter, I've not only shared with you that Satan has demanded you be turned over to him and that I have agreed to let this happen, but now, Simon, I'm telling you, you will struggle and fail. Your faith will not fail, but you will fail. Now, there are those who wants to... who. I'm going to say this as gently as I can. There are those who believe that if we fail enough, we have to be resaved. I don't believe that's what this is saying. It's through our failures that we fully understand God's grace. I'll leave it at that. So here's my question as we close. Is it possible that in a nation that is so blessed with so many wonderful things that we within the church have begun to believe that if you live a good life, God will smile upon you and spare you from the very things that forge strong heroes out of faith? Have we begun to believe Have we adopted the economy of the United States into our faith? Do the right things. Live a clean life. Be kind. Go to church. Pray. Worship. And God will reward that. You're going to be okay. There was an anchor on a certain news channel a year and a half ago. His son committed suicide. This Catholic gentleman. Someone interviewed him some while after that because people were very concerned for him and wanted to know what was going on with him. This was his response. He said, i got to tell you, my faith is shaken. You know, you grow up believing this. If you're a good guy, if you're good people, and you do the right thing, and you go to church and you go to Mass, that God's going to protect you. And I've found that's not true. My faith is really shaken. That's in the doctrine of that church. It may not be in the doctrine of this church or another church, but for some reason we believe that. And that's how we live our lives sometimes. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. This is our benediction today. 
Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Generally speaking, live a good life, be kind, it goes better for you. Generally speaking. But it doesn't mean anything about salvation. Because we're never good enough. And we will never remain good enough. It's the grace of God. That although we fail and we get filthy, like we've wrestled in a bunch of mud and manure in the world, God says, my grace is what saves you. Equip you with everything good for doing His will. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We serve a marvelous God, gracious God, patient God. Thank you, Lord. How many times can you say it? Thank you, Lord. 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 And He's equipping us. And what He's equipping us for is what we will endure. Lord, You are good and wonderful. You are beautiful. You are faithful. You are always right. What a privilege it is, Father, to be trusted by You to endure hardship for Your glory. What a privilege that is. What an honor that is. That you should choose that we struggle and suffer. It's hard to say, Lord, it goes against our nature. It goes against our, our flesh. But we trust you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you do not know, yet know the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to get to know the Lord Jesus Christ or there is no hope. There is no hope. Blessings.